welcome to These Lads on Mental. My name is Gary. And I'm Neil. And our podcast is a lighthearted approach to normalise mental health. But before we start today's show, please listen to our disclaimer. This show is just a group of opinions and is not to be treated as medical advice. If you are struggling with mental health, please speak to your physician or reach out to a service such as Lifeline. Thank you. These lads are mental recognizes the Gadigal people of the Aurora nation as the custodians and traditional owners of Sydney. We pay respect to their ancestors and elders past and present and value their continuing connection to lands, living culture and integral contribution to the bright and inclusive future of this beautiful city that we call home. Joe. Hi, Joe. How are we lads? Good mate, how are you? Good. So what's happening, Joe? Talking so much, man. Busiest <laughs> <laughs> man in the world. Nah, man, not much actually. It's good. Where are you based, Joe? I'm based in Dubbo, in New South Wales, Western New South Wales. Nice. So we've been obviously not comparative to anywhere else in the country, but we've been the past two years relatively unaffected by everything. They say, all right, you, you're locked down, but you can go everywhere, you can do everything, there's no issue. And then we got we got some guy got let out of prison. That was the that that tested in prison, but they didn't get the result back until he got out, and then it just pushed COVID through all of our communities to the point where we had about eight hundred cases in Dubbo. Yeah, and and Dubbo is a like small-ish regional place, but what people don't understand is that obviously with the Aboriginal health challenges as it is, anything west of here doesn't have a fucking hospital. Hmm. so we've got like so you i don't know you may have seen the stuff on the news around menindee and wilcannia and those sort of places that that their cases just went through the roof and there's like they're trying to get people on ventilators in hospitals and stuff there's no hospitals there's just there's no there's no health care yeah so so everyone in the cities who are like you know this is all bullshit it's it's fake it's you know we don't we shouldn't be locked down all of that they've got hospitals on every corner They've got yeah. doctors, doctors whenever they can go to. Whether you believe in this thing or you don't, the fact that it's making people sick and people are surviving it, people are surviving it because they have decent healthcare and decent pre-existing health conditions where Aboriginal people, predominantly Aboriginal people out this way and anything west of here, the only Aboriginal deaths in the country have come from here. Wow. And that's one of those people were four hours west of here so you had to travel four hours to get to a hospital here four hours four hours man yeah so that's what people don't understand mm. with the challenges out here 800 seems like a huge number in sydney they're getting like 1500 cases a day oh wow geez. you know 1200 cases that sort of stuff like but so that's why i'm saying not comparative to the to the numbers or anything like that or anyone else's situation they only have seven icu beds they're the realities out here. Yeah, yeah. And, and particularly in, in, in Aboriginal communities where you're getting middle-aged white men, politicians, stand on, the, stand on the TV and say, don't leave your house, don't go anywhere, this is really, really serious. And Aboriginal people are going, they fucking told us what to do for 200 years, we're not going to listen to this bullshit. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So locally, I got with some politicians, I said, mate, start using us for your messaging. So, Joe, you probably don't remember me, but um, 
I volunteered on a mental health charity called The Light Bulb, which is a black tie event. And you did a lovely video message for us a, a good few years ago now, uh, passing on your support. So very much appreciated back then. But with all our guests, as we normally kick off the show, we, we start off with this question, which is tell us about like your mental health story. What does mental health mean to you and how has it impacted your life? Me, I'm Joe Williams. I'm a Radri Wogler man, First Nation man. Mental health for me has been a ride. I've been in this. I've been in this space since about 2014, when it wasn't mainstreamed and spoken about. And and when I come out and started chatting about it, it sort of got a lot of people uncomfortable around it because, you know, oh, he's not qualified. He can't talk about that sort of stuff. I've struggled with suicidal ideation since I was a 13 year old kid, on the back of some fairly traumatic head knocks. Um, played played sport all my life. Now I'm lucky enough to play it at a decent level. And then that with, I played rugby league, so compounding week after week after week, getting knocked around the head. And I played at a fairly high level. So I was playing first grade footy in the bush at, you know, 14, 15. So I was getting knocked around the head a fair bit in my position. That my position's like the cheeky little young guy that everyone or the old guys are like, you know, if he's, if he's good enough to be Eddie, let's see if he's tough enough to be Eddie sort of vibe. So I copped all sorts of head knocks. And, and, and then I guess looking back at it and the evolution of where this space has gone and even, even my, my story as such, concussions weren't spoken about, head knocks and head trauma wasn't spoken about. But as we know now and the, and, and the, the research around that stuff, it's all very relevant. It's all very relevant to, to mental health challenges and people that go through it on the back of, you know, head knocks. So, you know, looking at the, the, the history of CTE and it wasn't at all spoken about. And now it's, you know, it's a prominent conversation around the country with, with all sports. So that's how I got into the space. I guess how, how I directly got into it was suicide attempt in 2014. And then on, ba- on the back of, realizing that I had a bigger purpose, it was to help people. And again, let's look at 2014 compared to, to what we are now. There, there, there wasn't a charity on every second corner that spoke about this stuff. There wasn't everyone sharing their story. So, so what I did and when I did it was all very, very, very new. And it was, it was confronting for a lot of people, but the storytelling in itself, because on the back of, I was lucky enough to play some time in the NRL and then I was a professional boxer. And when I actually came out talking about this stuff was when I was, I was, I was boxing. So people saw me in a smaller town. I was living in Wagga at the time. People saw me in a smaller town was like, well, this guy like played sport all his life at a decent level. And he goes through this. The amount of people that started then coming forward to me going, Joe, everything you've just talked about, everything that you've just vocalized, I go through the exact same thing. I now know that I'm not alone in this, you know? So that's how it all started um, with that. And it just progressively grew from that to the point where I don't particularly talk about mental health anymore. The work that I do now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I'm, a, I'm a First Nation man. You look at the Aboriginal suicides in our country are uh, comparative to some, of the, to, to, to some of the suicide rates around the world. You know, in, in some age, some age demographic, we are the highest numbers in the world. And when looking at Aboriginal suicides on the back of, again, talking to different people in community and then 
I was a keynote at the World Indigenous Suicide Prevention Conference, and I've done that, you know, three consecutive times now. Firstly, in New Zealand, then in Australia, and then this year was online in Canada. Like, the conversation around that is that our people weren't dying from mental illness-related suicides. We're dying from the effects and impacts of trauma and the ongoing impacts and effects of colonisation, trying to live and walk in two worlds that are impacting us. So a lot of my work, whilst it's still in that inverted commas mental health space, it's talking at a, a very different angle now, looking at looking at people's behaviours and looking at, you know, child and brain development and, you know, looking at really trying to address behaviours before they, they start and manifest into alcoholism and addiction and, and all of these challenges that we face as adults that we're trying to cover up with, with substance, you know? So looking at what, what causes us to be the way we are, you know, looking at behavior as language. What, 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 what is someone trying to tell us when they're not like that? And then going even further into that, looking at child attachment and things like that. So my, my, my journey and, and in this space has developed a hell of a lot to looking at, again, one of my favorite sayings is don't look at what, look at why. Don't look at what's going on. Let's look at why it's going on. You know, so I go around and talk to people and do loads of stuff with people as far as relationship counseling, loads of stuff with people around just why they are the way they are, why they think the way they do, looking at looking at their their interactions with people and why they get triggered by different things. You know, that that really, that really early childhood traumatic behaviors that are conditioned into us you spot you and i do remember i do remember doing that video <laughs> uh, i do remember doing that video i'm really really lucky that i've got mel and you probably would have been um emailing mel who looks after all the stuff that i do and she has been doing it for a number of years now is that my memory's cooked <laughs> as far as like getting punched in the head and then playing footy and stuff like that but so she keeps tabs on everything she reminds me about everything for for some reason it was there it was there like i i do remember it oh that's good well good on you like that initiative itself has raised over a million dollars uh, internationally so you played a, a part in that so thank you very much you spoke about trauma and in in last week's episode we had genevieve bailey who's a director of happy sad man the film i'm not sure if you've seen it but she spoke about trauma as well and how a lot of people think ptsd is only linked to war times when in actual fact you can suffer from you know ptsd trauma from anything a breakup in a relationship losing a job you know all these kind of things and we maybe we, we don't do enough to deal with trauma from a young age as you said and we also had a ceo of a mental health charity nick from batir who spoke about how 75 percent of mental health conditions manifest before you even turn the age of 18. so it seems like you're on the right track in terms of asking about that why early in the piece rather than later in life and maybe it's a little bit harder for us to deal with well it's 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 everything and everything that what nick said is is bang on the money like we, we you i everyone we are all a product of the behaviors that we learned and conditioned in the first thousand days of our life so let's talk about the first thousand days the the impact of of the baby in the embryo in mum's tummy and the the, the chemicals that get released in mum's brain that directly impact the baby, 
right? And that that fight or flight system that is highly alerted because of the way that mum's treated and the and the, the challenges that mum has in relationships or the stresses that mum goes through in during that pregnancy. Like when I start to learn about that stuff, I go, holy hell, like. And I, I, I wrote a blog that I speak about. I've got to publish it because I haven't done it yet. How I've traumatized some of the most, the people that I love the most in the entire world through my behaviors. So not through, not through violence or anything like that. Like people think that, that when we talk about trauma, we talk about the, the pointy end of things. But the impact of the baby's brain in the first thousand days so in the, in the womb and then two years this side of the earth and everything that ba that baby sees, learns and even feels and touches and hears develops the attachment of that, what that baby's going to carry for the rest of their life. So which then plays out in behavioral challenges and relationship challenges for you and I as 30-year-old men. Hmm. I'm a little bit older than that, but... Um, <laughs> Do you get me? So like this stuff is so much more deeper. So when, so when we go through a breakup, why we get impacted and why other people don't get impacted as much is because of the way that we've been treated in the first thousand days of our life. Mm. So I'm looking at, if I've got these feelings now, one, I can't, re I can't, I guess, make them go away, but I can look at, what's causing them and then identify what's causing them or identify what they are when I'm going through them, which helps me to understand it a little bit more. Right? So I'm a 38-year-old man that gets triggered by all sorts of stuff. Right? Let's look at PTSD. I'm an Aboriginal man. So when we hear racism, when we hear impacts of, of things that involve race, and the challenges that are around colonization, that's directly impacted and can, and can, be, can be called, but isn't called a form of PTSD. You know, like when, 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 I get, when I get pulled over by the police for a random break test, my heart's going through the roof. I haven't had a, I haven't had a drink in 16 years. Mm. Why the hell is my heart going through the roof? Well, why the hell ever, ever my, is my anxiety, my nervous system just erupting? It's because 200, for 200 years, we've been bashed by those sort of people and been told to step into line or we'll get our kids taken away hmm. or we'll get punched in the mouth. You know, like all, 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 all sorts of things will happen to us. Like, Colonization in the history of this country is a form of PTSD hmm. for Aboriginal people. And also generational anxiety and depression as well. As you can probably tell, I'm Irish, Gary's Scottish. And I'm an <laughs> Even though we've been here for years. Well, we're now, I'm a citizen now. I don't know about Gary. Maybe we'll get his papers checked to make sure he's legal. I'm, I'm searching, mate. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're true blues, as they say now. But I'm, with Ireland, famously, we have the famine, which was in 1847, and they, they speak about generational trauma as well. And I think it was, I think I heard correctly in Kilmainham Jail, which is in Dublin. It took three to four generations to grow out the famine in Irish history alone, you mm. know, in terms of those years. So, yeah. That's, that's, that's if those behaviours aren't repeated as well. Mm. 
Like, so we look at it, we say it takes three to four um, generations to grow out. That's if those exact behaviors are stopped on the spot. If those yeah. behaviors are then repeated to the next generation and then repeated to the next generation. So it's not just the actual famine or the actual physical things that, that are, are neglected during the famine, you know, hunger and, 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 and mistreatment and those sort of things. It's not just that. It's, it's the actual behaviors that we see and pick up and learn as babies that we carry on to our kids and then we carry on to our kids. We carry on. So you look at the deeply embedded traumas, intergenerational traumas for First Nation people in this country, it goes as far back hmm. as colonization, 230 odd years. And it's, it's interesting because even if you do break that or draw that line in the sand, which is like you've got two choices, as you said, you can either pass that on or you can try and draw a line in the sand. But even if you draw a line in the sand, speaking of things like addiction and alcoholism, I've heard you say before that even when you do that, it never really goes away. Would you agree with that? Like you still have to battle with it. You know, you can still have to cope with it. It doesn't necessarily always go away, right? Well, it's, it's about, and again, like looking at the generation. So I can draw the line in the sand for me, but as far as alcoholism and addiction, all I can do is put in the right products and, and processes to help my children through those challenges as well, right? If they pick up and if they go through those behaviors or, or, or and again, let's look at the deeply embedded stuff within our nervous system. So if, if, if my kids, if I draw, draw the line in the sand and say it's stopping with me, but then my kids pick it up and then pass it on to their kids, we're back at the start. You know, so it's a super, super, super hard thing to, to uh, one, look at, two, to address and, and three, to manage. So it's just about, you know, constantly trying to do that. I wonder where Australian Indigenous communities and Torres Strait Islanders are versus other Indigenous tribes across the world, like, you know, like Native Americans and so forth. I wonder, you know, in terms of that trauma and mental health risk, is it the same? Do you know what I mean? Or does it, is it? Is it true at a different position? Yeah. Because like, Irish people, are, there is a great, well, I mean, it's not great. There's a synergy there because we were suppressed by the British for 800 years. And that trauma today, even in me, is always there because you just drink alcohol. Like it was like alcohol was to drink away your pain, you know. And Sue used to say when I came to Australia first and met her, like I had this thing about money. I was always trying to save money as if like, you know, I had nothing, you know, the kind of way like. She's like, why are you stressing about money all the time? I was like, I don't know, it's just ingrained in my DNA. Like, that is so, is so true, man. Like, that is yeah. so true, all of that sort of stuff. That's, that's behaviours, right? Like you look, at, you look at money because of, of scarcity or, or whoever we're talking about, look at it as a, because of scarcity. We're going we're gonna to hold on to it as much as we can. Mm. Like that's just, that's, that's, that's how evolution is. Mm. And where is like with your work across the world, as you mentioned already, in terms of, let's say, First Nations people in Australia and Torres Strait Islanders, where are they in the, in the global sense versus other Indigenous communities across the world? Are, are they behind the head of the game or what's the landscape globally? I guess how I would answer that is to say it's not a race as far as, as where, where we are or where we should be or anything like that. But 
but all the challenges are more or less identical, like super similar to everything. Like I've, like I've, I've, I've spoken with people from Canada, uh, First Nation people in Canada. I've been to reservations right throughout the US, in in New Zealand. You know, similar similar challenges. Indigenous peoples right throughout the world. Right, we've 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 been forever what they call collectivist people. You know, so it's, it's always been about feeding others before you feed yourself. You know, and and now we're caught in caught in a let's call it a capitalist world that you know it concentrates more so on on making sure that your own bank is is, is you, you've got all the money in your own bank and then you, you're feeding yourself before you feed anyone else, you know? So it's, we've got to get back to that way of life where it was all about feeding others before we feed ourselves. Like all of the, all of the first nation communities, indigenous communities around the globe that I've been to, that I've sat with, that I've spoken with, it's all the same. It, it is all the same with the challenges that we've got where we are as far as, as far as coming out of it. I think you, you've only got to look at, I guess, history as in the number of centuries that we were colonized. Mm. You know, the US are probably a little bit, let's call it in front of us because of, you know, they've been, they've, they were colonized a couple hundred years before us, you know. So it's about where we are on the, on the, on the scale, uh, you know, a way, to, a way to call it, but where we are far as how long ago colonization happened for us. Mm-hmm. And you yourself are a big advocate, as you mentioned already, for mental health awareness, and that's changed over time, as you said. Well, could you talk about when you first became aware of your own story? I think you mentioned a young age. Like, Was there a moment when you, you realized something's not right here? Well, there wasn't, right? And it was only... It was only it was only around that, that time in 2012 when I got to that really, really dark place and, and then, you know, talking to different, different doctors and so forth and, you know, um, diagnosis and misdiagnosis and that sort of stuff, you know, and, and I, was, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So again, like when I was diagnosed with bipolar, it was like, wow, this makes sense. Like I started to have a look at what that was and, and, you know, it talked about the highs and the lows and the manic periods and the depression and, and, and all of that made sense to me. Was that a relief? Was that a weight off your shoulders to be, to at least know what was hugely, going on? Yeah, hugely. So, so I was asked recently, what was it like when you were first diagnosed? And people sit, like take their diagnosis as something that's really, really negative. For me, it made sense. It was like, wow, this is why I'm like, I am, right? But what I'd done for so many years was, was just built in behaviors and built in values into who I am that helped me. So, and then I looked at what values that it was that I was carrying. Well, first I looked at the behaviors that I was doing when I was well. And when you look at the behaviors that we're doing, they were all aligned to these separate and different values. So looking at who I am as a person, I'm very much someone who, everything that I do, uh, every interaction that I have are based around certain values. And those values, dictate my behaviors um so you know i'm someone who's very value driven as far as what i do and everything and and i can attribute to my wellness and getting well is by centering values around my behaviors so for for, for many 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 years and again this started when i was a you know a 13 year old kid so i didn't know what it was i just thought it was normal everyone goes through right 
but I, I, I managed it and band-aided it for so many years with alcohol and drugs and different behaviours that I just thought that's what it was because, you know, alcoholism in this country is super normalised, mm. right? Everyone goes out and, 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 and gets smashed every weekend, yeah. right? I, I didn't think it was anything different, mm. but I realised that, that. And again, looking at, you look at the story going backwards, like I didn't know at the time that's what I was doing. It took me many years to be sober to go, wow, that's that's actually what was happening. That's what, what I was doing. That's why I was drinking. That's why I was taking drugs. That's why I was trying to escape everything that was going on inside my head. And that's the danger, right? Because when you're growing as a kid, I remember when I was about 13, I started getting like depressive thoughts as well. And if you're not, if it's not a normalized topic, you don't know what's going on and you're trying to put a finger on it. I remember thinking I was just moody which maybe I am, but I'm just thinking, what's wrong with me? Why am I feeling like this? Why do I have all this stuff? And it takes you, yeah, like for me, I didn't get diagnosed till I was 32. It took me 20 years to actually, you know, go and do it. I did want to make one reference. Oh, you were talking about getting bashed by the older lads. It did remind me when I was about 16, I was playing on the first grade team in soccer in Ireland and I nutmegged one of the senior players. And then the next time I got the ball, he nearly broke my leg and I was on the ground. And the manager was like, yeah, just don't ever nutmeg that fella again. You like, learn from it, huh? Yeah, learn I was from like, a rookie. <laughs> and then I became a defender. <laughs> in those early years playing football, and we call football rugby league, but in, in those early years of, of playing football, I had my dad on the team with me. What? Right? And my dad, yeah. So I, I played for two seasons with my dad, right? And my dad, you know, he says to me, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm, well, I won't say I'm a little bit, I'm a lot a bit softer than my dad. My dad is old school, rough and tough, you know, different era sort of thing, you know, brought up to fight sort of thing, that, those sort of vibes, when he's always like, oh, you know, you're, you're too emotional like your mother. Like that's sort of vibe, you know? <laughs> um, so he, he, like, he looked after me, man. No one went near me because my dad, like he had a bit of a reputation as well as a, as a bit of a tough man. And he, he played it rough and tough. So I was looked after as a kid. But when there was one season, the season before I moved to Sydney, Sydney my dad was working on the railway. So he'd, so he'd miss every second or every third game. So when he didn't play, they knew he wasn't there. And man, I used to cop it. <laughs> I used to cop it off them older boys. Where's your daddy now, Joe? Yeah, they're the, they're the words that were said to me. Daddy's not out here with you now, is he? And I'm like, <laughs> Shit. One question regarding the rugby side of things that I know you made a big choice to move away from home, obviously to Sydney, to start to pursue that rugby career. Looking back, do you think that was a contributing factor to perhaps what followed years later? Because, I mean, moving away from home is never easy for anybody. And, I mean, your environment is a lot different from the country into Sydney City. And I don't know if you moved. Did you move alone? Did your family come with you? Yeah, I moved away when I was 16 or just just 17, like a couple of weeks after I turned 17. So I was only a pup, you know, like I was only a kid. And I was very much a mummy's boy. Mum did everything for me. So I went to Sydney and then and had to learn how to do it myself. Was that a contributing factor? I don't think so because I had it. I had it a long time before, before I moved. You know, so we're looking. At, I didn't move away till I was just seventeen, but I was I was experiencing this stuff since I was th since I was thirteen. You know, but what I will say is that a lot of people talk about. And I'm not sure if you guys know, but a lot of people talk about how being away from country, like being being off country as as an Aboriginal person. So I'm not sure if you know that 
this nation we call Australia is divided up into 500 separate nations or separate tribal groups or separate tribal areas, right? So I was very much west, west of Sydney, my nation. So being away from there, people talk about it being homesick and a lot of Aboriginal people get homesick and want to go home all the time. You know, we say that, that it's our spirit yearning from back home. So did I get homesick a lot? Yeah, I got homesick a hell of a lot. So it was it was one of those things. What what again is that a contributing factor? It definitely played a factor in the homesickness. Played a factor in me going out and getting you know off my head all the time because it was a way to escape what I was going through and a way to escape what I was feeling. So the actual trying to band aid everything was was a contributor. Yeah, but being away from home, I'm not sure was the actual challenge of what I was going through. If you know what I mean, like because. Again, to play in the NRL, I had to move away. I wasn't going to do it whilst I was at home because I was five hours inland, right? So it wasn't going to happen unless I moved away. So I was, I was pretty much, I knew that I had, that, that I had to um, if I was going to go down that path. But yeah, definitely there was some homesickness and, and the spirit calling for home, no, no doubt, which, which played a factor into my behaviours for sure. I mean, that, your actual sporting career, I mean, it's you're probably pretty modest about it, but it's pretty impressive to be play NRL and then become a boxing champion. Will's going through the mental struggles that you had. It's, it's pretty impressive, mate, like credit to you, absolutely unbelievable. Could you maybe perhaps tell people listening how it all unfolded for you, going from NRL, transitioning into rugby? I mean, it's two different sporting careers. Hard, people would be impressed just to do one of those things. And then also how it sort of unfolded right up until maybe 2012, that big moment. Yeah, so so I, I think I can break my life into different pieces, right? So you look at pre-NRL career, post-NRL career, and then pre-suicide attempt, post-suicide attempt. And it all they all intertwine within each other. So, you know, the, the challenge that I was going through, re what was happening in my head, and then the early years of addiction were very much pre-NRL career. So Again, like I got, I got sober my second year into playing top grade. So I was down there for, you know, three years before I played in the top grade. So that was a good three years of giving it a red hot nudge uh, in the city. You know, the bright lights all get turned on at once. You know, you're in a city that doesn't sleep, you know. So when you find that stuff and again, just a, a way to escape, we talk about addiction and what it is. And addiction is, is a form of escaping um, what's going on. I was lucky enough to, to, to play at that level and I got sober early on in that level. So my NRL career and the early years of my NRL career was, was very much about sorting out what was going on inside my head. And then once, once I, I, I got sober, I started to get this, you know, I, I got to the point where I, I wasn't enjoying my footy anymore because the only things I had in common with my teammates were playing and partying. And now I wasn't partying anymore and I wasn't enjoying my footy anymore. So I walked away. I had opportunities to, on, 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 I guess, uh, lower tiered deals to, to, to play on in 2008. But it was, was, I I remember it distinctly. It was like, I've done it now. You know, I want to move on to something next. And, and around that time I started training with a guy called Johnny Lewis and Johnny was like, you know, we're going to get you fit. We're going to get you back in, back in the top grade. We're going to get you, you know, we're going to get you a new club. So those early conversations were about doing the best I can, getting fit to go on and get another footy deal. And the more I trained, the more I enjoyed it. 
And and the more Johnny saw me, you know, sparring with guys and things like that, it was like, why don't we why don't we have a crack at this? You know, everything everything that I was doing inside the gym was not only helping me physically, but it was helping me mentally and emotionally as well. Like I was learning to fight back against what was happening inside my head. You know, you you're in a boxing ring and and if you're hitting on the pads or you're hitting on the bag or, or you're sparring against someone, there isn't many places to hide in there. You know, like when you get punched in the mouth, you start to ask yourself some questions. Do I really want to do this? Am I tough enough to do this? And I started to, to find this inner toughness, this inner, inner strength that was helping me fight back. Like, again, as, 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 I, as I alluded to, earlier with my dad I wasn't the world's toughest guy so when I went to boxing people sort of laughed at it because I that wasn't me you know and I I didn't like punching people in the mouth and I definitely didn't like getting punched myself so it wasn't something that was overly enticing but the more I trained the harder I worked you know Johnny said let's let's have a fight let's let's uh, let's do it like you go all right, you hold your hands up good. Let's let's see if you can go all right at this sort of stuff. And then, and I just, I fell in love with boxing. And, you know, it's sort of hard to say you fall in love with getting punched in the mouth, but it's, it's like, you can ask boxers and, and, and boxers will tell you, like my dad, because my dad was an amateur fighter as well. And my dad said, as soon as you have your first fight, you'll want to get back in and do it again. It's the most addictive thing in the world. And that's why you, you see so many boxers that, that struggle to retire. Like they want to just keep going and keep having one more fight, one more fight. Like I had my last fight six years ago or something. I, I still get up every morning thinking, yeah, that's it. I'm going to get back into training so I have one more fight. Like I, I still, I still, still try and convince myself. Like I'm cooked in the head. I can't remember my name some days. And I, still, and, I, and I still want to go out and fight because I love the feeling of boxing. Right? So boxing taught me something about myself that nothing could ever teach me that life, that no amount of books, that no amount of sitting in front of psychologists could teach me. It taught me how to fight back. It taught me how to, how to be strong. It taught me how to stand there in the, in, the, in the face of danger and bite down on my mouthpiece and start swinging back. It's an amazing sport, boxing. It seems to just have that power to help people go from rags to riches, right? And it trains you not only physically, but mentally as well. It's, it's, it's fascinating as a sport that it does that. Was the boxing, did that come post the dark times of 2012 or were you doing boxing? either side either side right either so side. so i fought for the wbf title and i fought for the wbf lightweight title less than 12 months after i had my attempt mm. right and i got knocked out that night in the 10th round ninth or 10th round or something like that and people were coming to me and were going you know i'm not i'm so sorry you got beat you know like it was it was a great fight you know it was and i was like yeah, I'm disappointed, man, but I nearly died 12 months ago. Losing, losing, losing something like this isn't like in, in the scale of things. Yeah, I'm disappointed, but you know what? I'm alive. You know, and that's that's a lot of how I take my life now. You know, you lose friends, you you lose relationships, things like that, and you go, you know what? Nothing's as dark as what it was in 2012. Hmm. I think that's a good bit, that's a great bit of advice of putting things into perspective often people with mental health conditions you know myself included will make a, a mountain out of a molehill for you know the most yeah. smallest thing but i think uh, that's some really good advice that you said there that it was just a fight and you move on to the next thing 
you do you do you also spoke about a phone call around that time that kind of changed your life could you talk us through that if if i'm honest it's a it's a conversation with my dad the conversation with my dad you know a week after right and 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 you know the, the phone call you you may be alluding to is that i i, I called a friend i called a friend the night that this is it you, you mightn't i mightn't be here tomorrow you know uh, it, it was a it, it was one of those phone calls that were upsetting that were sad it was one of those things and you know my the word you yeah, end up you know getting to getting to my dad and my dad got got over to me and, we, and the next it was that some of the, the strongest strongest conversations I ever had with my dad was in that time and and I think it probably come from my dad at that time and and again he wasn't he he isn't he is without doubt the most intelligent man that I've ever come across in my entire life and that didn't go a day past year eight at school but the most intelligent emotionally intelligent and and intellectually intelligent as well person that I've that I've met, right? And he talked to me about a conversation. The conversation that that I always tell people is is a conversation about the little boy that lives inside you, and 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 for you know for for I guess for girls, the little girl that lives inside him. But you know, and and again, like 2014. So we're looking. You're looking seven years after that conversation. Now I'm learning about I'm learning about early childhood trauma and. The, vo- the the inner voice of the child that missed out on X amount of things as a, as a kid, you know, learning about that with how that impacts our behaviours now. My dad talked about a story about the little boy that lives inside you and, you know, that little boy's a scared little boy and that little boy comes to dark corners and corridors at times and 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 doors and hallways that, that, that are a challenge. So, you know, and, and to my dad, he said, you come to his dark, this dark corridor with his door at the end of it and you've got this little boy who's scared and terrified and crying but wants to go through the door what do you do and I'm thinking my dad needed to hear vibrato and I said well I've got to kick the door down and show him there's nothing to be scared of and and he said that's where we get it wrong Joe so we don't need to be tough we don't need to be we just need to grab that little boy's hand and say you know what let's do this together so every single challenge from that point we all get that little boy that 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 rears its head in, in, in inside of us, and I just reach my hand out to that little boy. You know, each and every time that I'm faced with these confronting decisions to make, when I don't know whether to go left or right, I just reach my hand to that little boy and say, "Come on, we got this. We got it together." You know, so the inner child that sits within us all—it's about starting to connect with that, and again, not looking at what, looking at why. Look at why that little kid's that little kid's terrified. Look at why that little kid gets triggered by certain things, and and let's start to do the work on it. Very well said. And speaking of reconnection, you've also spoken about how, as an indigenous man, going back to your roots was a big help for you as you kind of matured through life. You've spoken how reconnecting to the bush, you know, greatly impacted your life. So if you think about maybe where you were at that stage of your life, you you were you know, living five hours in the city, you've done NRL, you've done boxing, now you're really starting to reconnect. Could you walk us through what that meant to you as an indigenous man, how that reconnection back to who you were ultimately helped you develop into, you know, the next phase of your life? 
again, it makes sense, right? It makes sense as to why I'm thinking the way I'm thinking, why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling at certain times of the year and so forth. You know, I, I grew up always knowing that I was an Aboriginal man. Always, 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 always proud of it. But the thing with down, down on the on the eastern states and the southern states particularly, is that we were impacted by colonisation first, right? So the first thing to go for Aboriginal people was our identity of who we are. You know, our skin got lighter over time. We didn't speak our language. We didn't have our practices. Everything that we knew as a way of life was taken away from us. And 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 we're now living this new way of life that. Whilst it's, it's been here for a few generations now, we still don't quite understand it. So we're still, we're still walking with a foot in each world that, that we're struggling to do. Going back and looking at and relearning, it took me a hell of a long time. And, and again, always knew that I was an Aboriginal person, but looking at and understanding the spiritual side of who I am, without doubt, has been the biggest healer of me, mentally and spiritually. And I was sitting out on country around a fire one night and an elder, special, special old fella that, that is my main teacher in, the, in this space, he said, you're not mentally ill. I don't care what the doctors tell you. And, and that was a conversation. It was like, what do you mean by that? This the most profound guy that I've ever met in my life, right, as far as knowledge goes. And he said, you're not mentally ill. You're spiritually ill. And you've got to heal your spirit to get well. As First Nation people, we're walking around in a world where our spirit is sick. Um, we look at the, all, the, all the challenges that are happening in, in, our, in our lives that are spiritually draining for us. We're trapped in a concrete world, you know, where we, where we, don't, where we don't take our shoes off and put our feet in the dirt and aren't doing the ceremonial practices that we did for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. You're right, we, we need to reconnect to that. There's, you know, loads of work around that and, and what it does and how it does and, and who it does and, and, and how it impacts us. So looking at the rediscovery or relearning of that, it just was like the aha moment. It's like... I've missed out on this all my life. Now I'm, I'm, I'm spiritually strongest when I'm doing this stuff. And for me, when I have these bouts of inverted commas mental health, now I get my swag and get out in the bush, get around a fire and just start to do the things that I need to do to connect back to the earth. Because again, like First Nation people, I say it all the time, the longest continual documentation of mankind started here in this country. Now, in over 500 separate nations in two and a half thousand different dialects of language, there's no word that means suicide. So if there's nothing to describe it, the action of what it is tells you it wasn't there. So if we've gone for thousands and thousands and thousands of years without an action, that impacted so many of our communities. How have we gone from not having it for thousands of years to now having the highest in the world? We have to look at what we did because it worked. What we're doing now is not working. Now, I talk often about, and, and the, you know, the, you're here one way and you just go back and live in the bush and why don't you just go back to, 
you know, hunting and living off the land. You know, it's, it, it's not about that. It's about learning to walk in two worlds because we're, we're in a world now that that is a dominant world, but we've got to introduce the practices that, that fill our spirit and we're going to, we're going to walk with a walk with a foot in each camp. I always say I'm a hunter and gatherer. I just do it at Woolworths. You know, I do it at the supermarkets, right? It's it's about learning to walk in two worlds. And again, looking at the old values I talked about earlier, talked about values and how centering values around every behavior that you have makes you well. For me, I center my 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 actions around the values that our old people lived with for thousands of years. Hmm. We're a day or two after the Facebook crash recently, where and it was a stark reality the last few days where you've noticed when WhatsApp, Instagram, and Facebook was down for 24 hours, I saw a great post of someone going, virtually everyone felt like their whole lives have been impacted. And it just made me realize going, Jesus, how fucking shocking is that to think that something like that we're controlled by so few and the amazing thing about indigenous community is as you said that connection to earth and i've had the pleasure of going on some indigenous tours before where they you know as little as two 250 years ago had no impact on the earth in a negative sense at all so if you think about where we were back then to where we are now where our lives can change because one business has a crash I mean, we've come a long way, but not necessarily the right way. And reconnecting to that, another fascinating thing about indigenous communities here is that there's very little resentment about how they've been mistreated. If anything, indigenous communities want to integrate with modern Australia and want to impart their knowledge together, which, and I think we should as a society embrace that because we're only going to be better for it. I say it all the time to people, you've never learned about us. We've learned about you for 200 years. You've never learned about us. It's only been a one-way street. You know, people talk about reconciliation of this country. Now, I don't even use the word reconciliation because to reconcile is to heal a broken relationship. We never had a relationship to start with. It was just a one-way street of assimilation, of being told, not, not, not being asked, being told to live a certain way of life. And if you didn't live that, so it's well-documented what the Solomon generation was stealing kids away from their families to take them away from the practices that they were doing to assimilate them into this world, into this modern world, because that's what's best for them. You know, like it's been the most destructive thing for us. Right. And again, like I'll say, I'll say it all the time. We don't need to, we don't need to reconcile because we never had a relationship to start with. What we need is non-Indigenous Australia to, to learn about us. Let's start a relationship, right? A relationship that's two ways because it's only ever been one way. And if you get fragile with that, that's for you to talk about. That's for you to do the work on, yeah. right? Because again, imagine imagine being having your, your, your entire existence uprooted and assimilated into a new way of life. It would be difficult for anyone. I don't care who you are. But there's so much to learn about the history about I've learned about the tribes and the different languages you've already mentioned and how even marriages was about strengthening the community beside you, how everything down to how you walked in single file to have less impact, eating seasonally. Like these are all things that you could, we could apply right now, which would help the planet that we live on. And 
like my wife is Australian and, and often I say things and then she'll have no idea. Uh, and then, like, even she says herself, she says, we didn't learn about any of that stuff in school. Nothing. Climate's a mess at the moment. But we look at climate change. We look at all the all of these inverted commas again, natural disasters. That's a way of Mother Earth saying, I'm the boss here. But we have to start treating Mother with respect or it's just going to continue to have these natural disasters in what we are. Again, people who lived through multiple ice ages, right? People who lived through multiple ice ages, why in the hell wouldn't you stop and say, listen, how'd you just do it? What'd you just do to fix the joint? Because, you know, we've been here for 200 years and we've almost wrecked it. Like thousands and thousands of years, man. That to me is just blatant ignorance. And let's call it what it is, stupidity. What is it? Insanity, doing the same thing over and over and, respect, and expecting a different result. Einstein said that, yeah. Come on, man. Thousands of years, what we did worked. What we're doing now is not working in the space of 200 years. There, there was a great quote, great quote that I used in a, in, a, in a short clip that I did recently. Pretty sure it was, I got it, I got it from Gabor Mate, but he's not the one who said it. The very cultures that were marginalized around the world will be the very cultures that we turn to to heal them on earth. You know, what we did was sustainable. Mm. What we did was, was about respecting the earth for thousands and thousands of years. We're gonna to start to have a look at that. For sure. One question I'm particularly interested in is, is the younger generation. I work well, you are a lot of young athletes and you've mentioned already how important it is in those earlier years. Any advice or, I mean, you've made some big decisions in your life. I mean, two big ones that come to mind straight away is moving away from home and then leaving a sport that, that most people would give their right arm to go and play professionally in. Massive decisions. What advice would you give to, to the younger generation? I think I was asked this recently around would I do anything different? Right? Because we, if, we, if we look at that question and framing that question as, as what would I do differently would be the advices that I give myself, right? So I wouldn't do anything differently. You know, there was things that I fell short on. There were things that I did well on. But they've all led me to be exactly who I am now. Now, I had absolutely everything pinned on wanting to be an NRL player. Like, my life depended on it. Like, my boy at the moment, like, me, he wants to play in the AFL. So, he, like, he wants it to the point where he would just do absolutely everything he can to be an AFL player. But that may not happen for him. We don't, we don't know what's going on. You know, like, uh, uh, we look at a path. We always think that we're on this path and we... And, 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 the path that we're on, the path that we get dragged to, doesn't necessarily suit our agenda sometimes. You know, so for me, I wanted all my life to be a rugby league player and I got, to, I got pulled onto a different path, which is uh, being a boxer. And then I thought I was going to be the world's best boxer and go to Las Vegas and, and travel the world. But then I got pulled off a path again. You know, they, they say, I talk about it all the time, they say the two most important days of your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why you're born. So my advice to kids, would be don't rush it. Don't rush it. Just put one foot after another. And if you've got a goal to do what you want to do, just do the absolute best you can each and every day to achieve that goal, right? We may get pulled off the path. It may not make sense why now, but it will eventually. You know, when, 
when obviously I went through the challenges that I went through, heartbreak, devastation, disappointment, all of these different things with my, with my rugby league career and then boxing career with losses and stuff like that. A cousin said to me recently, he said, I'm glad you got beaten that last fight. I said, what do you mean you're glad I got beat? He said, because if you won that fight, you would have gone on to more fights, bigger fights, which would have cost more head trauma getting punched in the head every day, which would have impacted my memory even more. You know, so he, he said, I'm glad you got beat because now you got your brain still and you get to do the work that you're doing. So back to what I said originally, the two most important days of your life, the day you're born, then the day you find out why you're born. It took me to a suicide attempt to find out my purpose in life. My purpose in life is to help other people. We, we do have some little quick fire questions for you, yeah. George. Quick short answers, just four questions. So the first one we ask every guest is, when are you at your happiest? When I'm with my kids. Love it. When I'm, when I'm, when I'm with my family. Superb. Very common answer we get. It's excellent. In terms of mental health around the world, out of 10, 10 being the best, where do you think we currently are? I think it's at five and declining. Okay. The world, because the world doesn't understand, the world doesn't understand the impact of trauma. The world doesn't even understand the definition in terms of trauma. But we think that it's all just the pointy end of things that happen to us. And we've got people in government writing policies and making informed decisions of where money goes to to help people on the ground that aren't trauma-informed. Hmm. Like trauma is the, you know, one of the biggest, if not the biggest indicator of people's behaviours. We need to learn about that stuff. That's actually interesting you said that because when we spoke to Nick at Batir, he was telling us how the government had defunded them during the COVID period and they couldn't help. I've never been funded by the government. Yeah, it's crazy. As, a, as, a, as an organisation, I've never been funded. So for what happens is me, I act as a consultant, pretty much. Communities get the funding and then they ring me to come and do the work. And then I do a job for them. They make a video, write a report and they get, they get funded again. And I'm sitting here going, hey, can anyone pay me? Does anyone want me to go to their community? And I'm the one who's doing the work. Where, where, is, where are you currently out of 10 with your mental health? I'm all right. Now I'm about eight. Okay. Eight doing what I need to do. I had a bit of a sleep in this morning. That's And my daughter did too, which is always good. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll do some training after this and um, get stuck into it, which will impact and improve my mental health again even more. Beautiful. Last question. If you could advise one people uh, for one thing people could do each day for their own mental health, what would it be? Just be the best version of themselves. And if you're not, work out why. Then we can do it. Then we can adjust our behaviours. Right? Don't look at what. Look at why. Let's look at why we behave the way we do. Let's look at why we feel the way we feel. When we identify that, and we're aware, right? I'm, I'm super, super lucky that I'm a very self-aware person because I've, I've done the work. I know when I'm having a bad day. I know when I'm manic. I need to tone it down a little bit. I usually get a clip from the boss, from the <laughs> boss in the house when I'm like that. But, and what uh, about your family, Joe? How many kids do you have now? Or? 
So I've got five. I've got five kids. Two two live in Sydney with their mother. So they're 16 and 15. And then I've got three out here. Uh, one 10-year-old lives with his mum and I've got the two younger ones here with me. Um, and they're, they're, they are seven. Again, I've got to get my head right here. I'm woeful with numbers. Seven and almost four. Wow. So you've got your hands full. All the time. You know what, but... <laughs> I say it all the time to people when they say, how's COVID been for you? COVID's been the best thing and given me the greatest gift in the world. COVID's taught me how to be a dad because mm. I wasn't a good dad for many, many, many years. Right, and I'm still learning to be better now, but I'm a hell of a lot better person, a hell of a lot better dad than I always was because COVID forced me to stay home. And my partner's an essential worker. She's a childcare worker. So she had to go and look after everyone else's kids all day. But I had to stay here and look after my kids and my youngest one who was at the time still needed to be put down for a nap and, you know, still needed to have to, to be fed at certain times. And I had to then learn to manage my day in meetings and zoom calls and interviews all around that. And my work came second then, you know, for all my life. One, I was a sportsman when I had my two oldest kids. And then I separated and repartnered, and that's when I went through my suicide attempt and the, and the challenges with that. So I wasn't in a great space then either, right? And then, as I said, the last you know, seven or eight years I've been doing the work on myself to be a better version, to be a better person. You know, it's, 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 it's one of those things that COVID taught me how to be better. You know, the last two years, Particularly, I learn how to be a dad. I learn how to be a better person. I learn how to be the best version of myself. And that's by constantly doing stuff and constantly learning things. I'm an avid self-learner. I'll learn about, oh, that's why I act that way. Okay, well, what can I do to improve that? Right? So I'm always learning to be better. Well, that's great. I think we're in October, so hopefully we're getting to the end of all the, the last period. But I think that's very good parting advice from yourself and... I hope a lot of people out there have learned something about themselves over the last two years. I certainly have. Gary and I have spoken about, you know, he has as well. So hopefully we've been able to take some positives out of it. But just before we wrap up, I, I can't not speak to you and talk about the connection between Indigenous lads and Irish people. <laughs> I was we're family, Gary, brother. We're, we're, both, <laughs> we're both kicked to the outsides of town. Yeah. Well, I was saying to Gary, like, when I first came to Australia, you know, I was putting on the AFL and all the indigenous lads had Irish surnames. There was like Dempsey who played down in, um, in Melbourne. And I was like, what, what's the story with all these indigenous guys having Irish surnames? And then someone told me that when Irish people came with the British, only Irish people were allowed to marry indigenous people. And the British weren't allowed to do that. So, and then you guys say deadly. You ask yourself why that? Well, we were just boat legends. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, clearly that, but we were, we were both, we were both for, we were both the opinions of, of us two were both that we were the lowest end of the earth. Hmm. Like they're not going to, they're not going to let, let the Aboriginal people, the, the, the primal, you know, uh, animals marry into this, this upper echelon of, of mankind. Hmm. You know, we, we were pieces of shit to them. You know, so again, don't don't ask, don't don't look at what, look at why, you know. Yeah. But again, 
That's uh, one of my favorite movies of all time. For all time. The Commitments. Yeah. One of my favorite movies of all time. Because I'm a muso at heart as well, right? And they talk and they talk about it in that, you know, how you know how the um you know the Irish are, you know, the the, the blacks of uh, the there go, you go. There you go. go. The Irish are Ireland is the is the are the blacks of Europe. Dubliners are the blacks of Ireland, and then they're like, "Say loud, say proud, we're black and we're proud." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. But like even even the word "deadly," like we say "deadly," indigenous people say, it, but as a good way. Like you're like, "How you going? I'm fucking deadly." We're exactly the same. That's yeah. us as well. Like he's the he's the deadliest footy player. Yeah, you know, people are like what? What do you mean he's deadly? Yeah. Like, oh, it's a good thing. Trust me. And then the Irish Prime Minister Michael T. Higgins is an absolute legend he's big in the arts he's a small little guy and he's a you know cuddly little teddy bear but he was in australia a few years ago and he made i don't know if you saw this but he did this unbelievable speech in in the perth parliament about the linkage between irish and indigenous people and it's been etched in irish history since the first irish person landed in australia so i think we have a deep connection which is awesome you know love it man i love it very proud. Well, Joe, how can people get in touch with you? So you mentioned your what, what what's what's happening with Joe now? You're doing consultancy, like are you on Instagram? Like, how do people get in touch? Yeah, I do loads of stuff on social media. I'm working on some things. I'm all, the thing is with me, man, I'm never quiet. I'm always thinking, always creating, doing different things. We're about to launch some stuff with a bit of luck in the new year, which is pretty cool. And you know, some normality might get back to us where we might be able to get it back out to some community. So on my Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Joe Williams underscore T-E-W, T-E-W for the enemy within. So at Joe Williams underscore T-E-W on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook, I'm the enemy within. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure to speak to you. Credit to you. You've had an amazing life and keep doing what you're doing. You've, I'm sure you've inspired so many people with your own story and certainly us on the show. So thank you for your time. Thanks, I'm lucky, man. I've, I've lived enough for three people. You know, it's it's one of those things that, um, you know, I'm super grateful to have the life that I've had. And we're not finished. We've got a bit to go yet. Good man. Love it, mate. Thanks a lot for your time, mate. Superb. Cheers, lads. Tell me that. I want to, that, that speech will be on YouTube, yeah? Oh, yeah. I'll send, I'll send it to you, yeah. All right, lads. Not my angel. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Mate. Take it easy, mate. Look after yourselves. Have a good day. You, you too. too. Don't forget to follow us on all the social media channels, including Instagram and Twitter, at These Lands Are Mental. And if you do have a topic or a guest or subject that you want us to talk about, please do get in touch and send in your suggestions. Thanks for joining us on today's show. As mentioned at the beginning, if you are struggling with mental health, please do seek further assistance. Here's who you can get support from. Lifeline, Beyond Blue, Fitzhere, and the Black Dog Institute.